0: Hey, welcome to another special edition of the Christ Alone podcast. This is week three in a Bible study through the Gospel of Mark that I've been working on here with a group of people in my town. And we're just working through the book of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going at a very fast pace, taking only six weeks to get through all 16 chapters. Um, And so we cover a lot of ground. And I keep telling them it's like we're snapping a chalk line just across the top of the gospel to kind of get a line of of the movement of Jesus Christ and Mark working to show us who Jesus is and then moving into what the mission of Jesus was. And so we fly through context or content here. Um, if you've run across this podcast just because you're a follower of the Christ Alone podcast, I'm glad to have you here with us. Um, if you have any questions, uh, about the Christ Alone podcast or this Bible study and where we do it at. would like more information. Please get a hold of me. If you have any other questions or comments as well, uh, I'd love to hear from you. and love to get your thoughts and feedback. About the best way to get a hold of me is just through a message on Facebook. Um, facebook.com backslash Dolachek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K. And you can hit me up on there and uh, I will get back to you. And again would just love to hear from you so one of the things that we're doing as we're working through the gospel of mark is we're working on reading through the whole text aloud together so that at the end of the 6 weeks we will have all read aloud heard or read the gospel of mark and i would tell you that this week we are supposed we are covering the the portion of the gospel of mark chapter 6 verse 7 through chapter 8 verse 26 And would tell you to pause and and go read it. But uh, just in case that wouldn't happen, I'm going to just go ahead and read it for us on air. And you can listen along. And uh, at the end of the six weeks, I'll have all of the audio of the Gospel of Mark uh, read from the ESV translation available on the podcast within the the content of this Bible study. So I will... uh, After some introductory comments here from me, we will get into and I will read the text. Start going through. You got an outline there in front of you, kind of, sort of. Uh, Just basically headings there of what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be reading, looks like chapter 6, verse 7 through chapter 8, verse 26. Uh, Right up to the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark, there's 16 chapters, but this is kind of the dividing line here at where we're going to finish at right before there's the big confession of Jesus as the Christ, which is what we're pushing towards all along in this book, right? Mark is writing this Gospel, he says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so all along the way, Mark is trying to help us see... Jesus as God So a couple of uh, Introductory things that I have Here I changed the So the first thing is that I, I don't have any Bible studies you've been to But uh, we don't ask a lot And I don't ask a lot What does this text mean to you Because frankly I don't care what the text means to you What we're looking at is What does the text mean um, There's a couple of different ways I mean, One way is it's a very subjective way that lots of Bible studies are done sometimes, lots of Bible reading is done sometimes. You read through your Bible and you look for something that speaks to you. And then you share with the group, this is what it means to me. Well I not not trying to be rude, but we don't this isn't about what it means to you. This is what does the Bible really mean? And we're looking for objective truth. What was Mark trying to communicate to us? So as we've snapped this chalk line and we're running across the top, the question we're trying to ask is what's just the, the obvious thing Mark is trying to communicate. Last week, we talked about the perspicuity of Scripture, right? Oh. I'm, Melissa, what? Perspicuity, which meant, does anyone remember? Like clarity? clarity, which meant clarity, the clarity of Scripture. But so as we snap a chalk line and we're looking at the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, there's just something that Mark's just trying to communicate a message to us that this wasn't written for like... Uh, certain monks hunker down in cellars and discerning this really f- interesting reality. It's just communicating a message to us. The second thing that I have on there, I think, is the authority of Scripture. So I, we talked perspicuity last week is one of the um, characteristics of Scripture. Authority is the other one. And the reason why I want to mention it this week is because we're going to get, at the very end of, t- of tonight's session, into some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, Jesus, it's it's fun to learn about Jesus as long as Jesus kind of stays in his corner. <laughs> and you can kind of say, oh, this is who Jesus is. And isn't it interesting for us all to learn about Jesus? But Jesus starts getting in your business. And then it becomes a little different. What do we do then when Jesus uh, doesn't stay safe and in his corner and he starts saying no? I have some authority, and here's what I think about these issues. And so we're going to get into that some this week and then some next week as well. There's some just tough stuff to get through. So one of the things that we have in there is the authority of Scripture. And at the end of the day, everyone lives with something as an ultimate authority. You can pretend like you don't or, you know, like, oh, I just don't really have an authority. Everything's okay. No, we all live with some sort of an authority. For most people, that authority is just simply themselves and really their opinions their thoughts their feelings on the issue that's really what has the authority as christians though we're trying to live with the bible as the authority this is the inspired inerrant infallible word of god it's literally god's word to us so when god says something about an issue we listen it has the authority and so I just kind of want to throw that out there because we, we get into some tough stuff, and one of the things that makes the Bible interesting is that it isn't this text that, um, oh, it just tells us all the great things about ourselves and kind of reaffirms everything we already think. It comes at us, and it kind of leaves you with a little bit of a bloody lip and a black eye, and you kind of messed up, and it's, it, it pushes against uh, – it's, and it's communicated – that's because I believe it's communicating to us truth. This is God's word to us. So is that all I have for introductory material? Yeah. yeah, okay. So we're doing Mark 6, 7, verse 7 through chapter 8, verse 26. I'll say a quick prayer and then we'll read our chunks of scripture starting in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Let's pray. God, I thank you again for the chance to just gather in this place tonight. We, we want to sit here under the authority of your word to us. God, we have lots of opinions. We have lots of thoughts we have lots of experiences and our culture has taught us many things, and our families and friends have taught us many things but at the end of the day, what you say we want to we want to give um, authority and special uh, ear to what you have to say so as we are learning about Jesus God, we would ask that you would give us eyes to see you clearly so that we would see you clearly and that we would come to believe even more fully in who you are we don't want to end. Uh, This study with just some sort of head knowledge about Jesus But we want to to walk away from this study in belief Faith in this Savior Faith in this God-man Faith in Jesus Christ Faith in you and who you are for us in Christ So give us eyes to see and ears to hear we pray in Christ's name The Gospel of Mark chapter 6 verse 7 And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. They came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest awhile, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go buy two hundred denarii worth of bread, and give it to them to eat? "'full of broken pieces and of the fish. "'And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. "'Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat "'and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, "'while he dismissed the crowd. "'And after he had taken leave of them, "'he went up on a mountain to pray. "'And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, "'and he was alone on the land. "'And he saw that they were making headway painfully, "'for the wind was against them. "'And about the fourth watch of the night "'he came to them walking on the sea.' when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him... what do your disciples why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands and he said to them well did isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of god and hold to the tradition of men and he said to them you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of god in order to establish your tradition All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she bade him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and there were about four thousand people and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of dalmanutha the pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said why does this generation seek a sign truly i say to you no sign will be given to this generation and he left them And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged begged him to touch him. First impressions upon reading that, where we're, you've now officially read half of the Gospel of Mark and listened aloud to half the Gospel of Mark. So, we're doing something right right off the bat right there. How many people knew there was a fiend of a five thousand and a fiend of a four mm-hmm. thousand? Right, okay, all right. Then that says it's um, you know, the fiend of the five thousand is recorded in all four Gospels, but uh, there's Mark. And, you know, it has both of them in there, and it's a, just an interesting a part of the Gospel of Mark. So, we've got a lot of things to talk about, a lot of content there, a lot of things, a lot of movement going on, lots of miracles being performed, but also some teaching. So, if you look in your outline, I go 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 9, 5, 6, and that's kind of, will end with 5 and 6. I just didn't, I got lazy and didn't bother moving the numbers around, so... That's kind of the way we'll go. So we're back in chapter six to start over with, and all of these Mark goes through. He kind of groups his teachings, and uh, that's why I think that there's a there's just kind of a as I was studying through this and thinking about it more today. There's just a heavier uh, hand to some of what Jesus is is teaching here, and I think Mark is just kind of grouping and and bringing uh, some clarity to who Jesus is. But it starts out with this. Um, Sending out of the twelve, and Jesus has gathered his disciples. He's prayed over. He's prayed about who to pick. He's picked the disciples, and now he sends them out. And down in verse, um, it, you hear kind of stuff about this about shaking the dust off of your feet. Uh, maybe you've heard that phrase before. That if somebody gets, if somebody, you're mad at somebody, you shake the dust off of your feet when you leave their house. It's really a very terrible thing. What it means to to do that to somebody. But verse twelve. Is kind of catches my ear that when they went out and preached that people should... Telling everyone. Telling everyone. Verse 12. Repent. repent. They went out and preached that people should repent. There is a very strong uh, message of repentance we've seen through the first six chapters here of the Gospel of Mark. John the Baptist shows up and what does he preach? Repentance. Jesus in chapter one he shows up and what's he preaching? Repent. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel is what he says. John again we learn later here with Herod he's calling he's calling a king out and telling him he should repent for taking his brother's wife. There's a strong message in the gospel of repentance. And Just as I reflect on it, and you think about in your Christian life and your Christian experience, and how often do we honestly hear the message, repent? If you were to, if we were to set you down in a conversation with somebody and explain the gospel or explain Christianity to them, and you start throwing words out, you use, you know, just give some words. We have love as on the table, I assume. We have grace, maybe, is on the table. Jesus is on the table. The cross. Is on the table. Is repent? Is repent a word that comes out if you are? If, would it be in your mind of when I present the gospel? There's some aspect of this that has to do with repentance. It's as I listen around and talk to lots of people. It's it's become uh, what's what's it, not in vogue anymore. It's not uh, it's not the popular message to come up with the gospel is this idea of repentance you agree or disagree maybe i'm making that up
1: i I don't know that i say repent we talk a lot about forgiveness okay with with the boys especially i think like that's a big focus of like our nightly prayers is knowing to ask for forgiveness
0: absolutely is that the same thing is that the same thing? Forgiving someone is not the same as repentance. What, no, asking, asking, what does repentance asking mean?
1: For asking God for forgiveness and asking for repentance. Is that, is that interchangeable exactly?
0: Repentance, if we were going to, mean, a definition of repent is to turn from sin to God. So repentance would be you have transgressed the, the righteous law of God. You see it. And repentance is... I no longer, I am, I am grieved over what I have done. I do not want to do this anymore, and I turn to God. And so repentance is, I see my error, I see my wrong, and I turn the other way. So
1: it's forgiveness is you've already done it, and you've asked for forgiveness, and repentance before you
0: do it? Well, forgiveness is certainly as a part of the gospel, and forgiveness would be what the cross achieves for us, is forgiveness for our sin. Uh-huh. And there's and there's repentance, if... if uh, kind of a one of the guys I listen to the way that he frames it he has these he says when we talk about the gospel we talk about Jesus it should be law gospel sin and grace repentance and the forgiveness of sins so those are law and gospel or sin and grace or repentance and the forgiveness of sins so there always is this element we see in their preaching of repent repent And there's a lot of that is missing in the modern church today, if I were to offer my personal critique, is that the gospel becomes kind of cheap grace, where what it's really about is, you know, well, God loves everybody, and it's okay, and you know, don't worry about it, it's all okay, and there's never any real contrition, never any real penitence, never real any confession of sin, of saying, you know what, this is something I've done that is wrong. We're uncomfortable in our culture. It's funny, Joel um, is base. We're such good parents; he's basically a perfect child. But uh, <laughs> occasionally he has his moments. Is that uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm I'm lying there. I that's I shouldn't lie. But uh, he was being mean to me, which is unacceptable in our house. <laughs> but he was giving me grief over something or whatever, and I just was. I'm like. I'm, I'm out. Uh, I got too many anger issues. I'm going to just walk away, and I'll come back later. And Darla had him come apologize to me. And it just – I thought, I don't want to say it's okay because it wasn't okay. And, he, and we're uncomfortable with even the idea of repentance and forgiveness. But, but there's – and it becomes absent in our culture, this idea that you actually confess I've done wrong. And we see this a lot in interpersonal relationships with your family and stuff, even maybe in your marriages and whatever. That um, something bad happens, and instead of maybe saying, "I'm sorry, I was wrong. I don't want to do this anymore," it's just kind of like, "Let's just make it to the next day, and we'll kind of forget about
1: it. <laughs> let's just kind of
0: let's ignore that that happened, and then maybe it won't happen again for a while." And you know, I mean, and and so we're very uncomfortable with this idea of. Taking ownership for who we are, and and the gospel comes along. Jesus comes along. John the Baptist comes along. God and His righteous standard comes along, and He says the gospel message. One of the key components to it is repentance, is a confession that God has a righteous standard and I have not lived up to it. God has uh, the way life has been wired out to be uh, conducted, and I've transgressed. I've rebelled. And so a very important part of the gospel message is repent. And it needs to be, I mean, I'm convicted over this. One of the reasons just after preaching Sunday, I get done and I think, you know, I, I could really press on that harder. Because I want to press you, I want to press the people that I'm serving. I want to press myself to that kind of, um, that crux, that uh, that fork in the road of when I'm talking about sin, I mean you. I mean me. I mean for real, transgression has happened. Do we repent and turn from sin and turn to God? Or do we just pretend like, eh, you know, yeah, it's kind of wrong. We're going to move on from that. You know, and, and, and the gospel message is not that second one, it is that first one of confession. I have sinned. I am doing wrong and I need to turn from sin. And turn to God And we'll get to more of that But I just think it's I mean You start looking for repeated things When you read your Bible And the message of repentance Is coming up over and over again As these guys go out and preach Repentance So I mean I, I, I think that I'll just ramble more Instead of giving you guys a chance to <laughs> Can you know what else can see darling But me? Okay She's shaking her head at me uh, it's an unpopular. I mean, in our self-affirming culture, do what you think is best for you. You do what you feel is right. If it's if it's what you feel like you should do, you know. And we just kind of have this
1: non-judgmental,
0: non-judgmental. Uh, really? Everything's
1: everything okay it is, as long it as, is, as you don't is, hurt somebody yes, else. You and can't everyone. offend anybody. I mean, you can't. Jennifer. I tell my kids that. I guess. I mean, you know. Yeah. That's okay. If they want to be like that,
0: then you just be nice to them. I'm like, maybe I
1: shouldn't, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it is hard. It's, it's, I, I think that is like the general non
0: Right. Everything's okay. Yeah, that we, all time. Everybody's but, a winner. Well, I mean, and we, and it's very politically correct in our culture to yes, just basically they only, you know. um the only sin is to say there is sin, basically, or the only thing that's unacceptable is to say something is unacceptable. And that doesn't mean we become the, the the moral majority police out amongst our culture and just start going around and waving flags or shaking our fingers. But in a personal gospel con- uh, conversation, in, in your own personal life, at things like a Bible study at church, repentance needs to be one of the things we talk about. It's a it is a core central part of the gospel message. And we, and we talk about the meta narrative creation was is not the the state that we're all in now the fall has happened and we're all sinners and repentance needs to be a big part of of who we are in that relationship so i just want to make a note of that on to john the baptist talking repentance can get you killed <laughs> and it's exactly what happens with john the baptist um Herod, the reason he's got something funky going on there, uh, he John had been uh, saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod married Herodias. Uh, I guess his brother is married to her, and he decided he liked her, and so he did something to his brother and took Herodias as his wife, and John is saying that's sin, and you shouldn't do that, and it's not right. You need to repent. And... Uh, Herod doesn't like it, puts him in prison. Really, Herodias is the one who doesn't like it. She's like, don't be calling me a, you know, whatever. And, uh, I mean, we see how it goes down here. But um, you, you see, one of the things that I want us to kind of see is this, well, John is including this because it kind of leads into this. It's a backstory of what's happened to John, but it starts out with this question of who is this man, right? In verse 14, some are saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claim he's a prophet, one of the prophets long ago. Everyone's trying to figure out what is the deal with this guy. He's doing all these miraculous things. He's teaching like no one else is taught. He has all this authority. Who is this guy? They're trying to figure it out. One of the guesses is that he's John the Baptist, but uh, they get that wrong. Uh, John the Baptist himself says, as we looked at uh, someone, the greater than me, I'm not even worthy of tie his sandals. Is here? Uh, follow him. He must increase. I must decrease. Is John the Baptist's message? So, yeah, John gets killed. Gets his head chopped off. Um, the idea that uh, following Jesus leads to an easy life. Uh, John the Baptist. You have to go no farther than realizing that the reality is uh, this life is a temporary arrangement and. Mm-hmm. Following Jesus does not mean everything goes hunky-dory for you. So, now we go to the feedings of the 5,000. Any, I mean, interject any you know, thoughts you have there on the John the Baptist stuff uh, or anything else we've gone through so far. Let me think of Henry VIII.
1: And all he did, I mean, all of his stories about killing people yeah, are yeah. stupid. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> totally awesome. <I> mean, does <laughs> Jesus never make a point like of preaching and saying... He died in his name, like John the Baptist. I mean, it just seems like how it's written here. I don't even think I remember that John the Baptist was beheaded. And now it's just like we go on with it. Jesus didn't acknowledge that.
0: Jesus he, says that uh, I mean, he, he says beheaded. there is no one greater born of man than John the Baptist. in okay. um, so a different gospel. I'm pro- they repeat a lot. Yeah, the the three are the synoptic gospels. I'm not sure which one it's in. We could look it up. But yeah, Jesus says no one born of of woman is greater uh, than John the Baptist. So he, you know, and and we, we run into later John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Baptist goes into prison before he's beheaded, and he sends to Jesus and is inquiring, you know, is this is this for real? What's going, you know, because John's in jail, and and they have a. They, They're not quite getting the picture of who Jesus is. When we get into the next three weeks, Jesus starts talking a lot about, I'm here to die, I'm here to die, I'm here to die. And they're always like, what is he? What's he smoking? They're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Because they're not looking for a dying savior. They're looking for a victorious uh, rescuer. And so John the Baptist is like, I'm in jail, where's my deliverer? You know, he's kind of, you know, there's some conversations that go back and forth between them. But uh, yeah, John the Baptist Gets props from Jesus, okay. certainly. Um, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. We could spend a lot of time in here. Um, but, yeah, there's these two feedings. And, you know, it, God has kind of a history of miraculously feeding his people. Moses uh, leads the children of Israel through the wilderness, and he feeds them something called? Mana. I
1: don't know. We call
0: it mana in Indonesian. Mana. That's probably more accurate pronunciation. We say we're we're southern. We say manna, <laughs> it? manna. But uh, but probably that's uh, probably more correct pronunciation. But literally means what is it, right? And and God just shows up and there's manna miraculously on the ground and quail comes in and feeds them. There's actually an interesting story. Um, Elisha in Second Kings chapter four. If you wanted to flip back there, you could. We don't really have time to do this kind of stuff, but. We haven't, I like, cross scene is a very good thing to do. We just haven't had much time. But Second Kings, Old Testament 4, uh, 42. and uh, Elisha um, has these men. He brings, uh, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain. And Elisha said, give them to the men that they may eat. His servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So he had 20 barley loaves, and they fed 100 men and had left over. A miraculous feeding. But it doesn't really compare to the reality of Jesus feeding 5,000 people and really 5,000 men is the, is the what you get There is the idea that there is so much we can go into about the gathering of these Galilean men. Um, and their desire to have a revolt and a, a messiah that's going to throw out Rome there's kind of a military kind of like there's five thousand dudes here like we could maybe we could have a nice army and that's there is some of that maybe going on, but um five thousand men and so if you maybe everybody has a wife and then they've got. 30 kids each or something, you know, it's a, it's a lot of people. I mean, your estimates are 15 to 20,000 people possibly that Jesus is feeding with two little fishes and five loaves of bread, right? And with these things, the multitudes were fed. So Jesus is a greater Moses. Uh, He's a greater Elisha. He's actually, he's a greater King Herod. Um, Herod throws this party for his birthday and he calls all the high officials to come and kind of celebrate him. Jesus is trying to kind of get away from the crowd here. They follow him and when they show up, Jesus serves. Jesus serves food. He isn't the guy who's trying to make a big to-do. He's serving the people. But the, the, the disciples, they're asking these questions. We can't feed this many people. It would take eight months of wages. How can we do this? And then Jesus miraculously multitude, multiplies this food and takes care of them. And he does this on another occasion. Is it not interesting if we flip back to the, the feeding of the 4,000? Here we are with another multitude of people. Now Mark isn't necessarily chronological, but Jesus only ministered for three years, so it's got to be relatively within the time frame. And there's a multitude of people, and there's no food, and they're like, "What do we? how are we going to feed all these people? <laughs> and Jesus is like, I mean, I, don't, I can't say what he's like. He says, well, how many loaves do you have? But you gotta, wouldn't you think they're, why, they're not getting it, right? They're like, how is this going to get fed? And like, well, I don't know. I'm the guy who fed 5,000 with two yeah. little yeah. fishes and five loaves of bread, so maybe I'll handle the 4,000 kind of the same way. And and Jesus, Jesus is this satisfying uh, figure. He takes care of those who are his. I mean, to me, that's kind of the most plain reading of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes care. He gives those who are his what they need. And and in abundance, the disciples, the first time they come up with 12 extra baskets full, possibly one for each apostle, um, but he miraculously provides what his people need. Not always what they want, but definitely what they need. And he's more than satisfying to them. Um,
1: yeah. I think as a disciple, I mean... I would be really intimidated to ask you. Hey, remember that last time you did Five thousand people. We do right. that again. Right. I mean, what? Do you think this is? Like they, are, they were playing do stupid. Do you feel people? well? Not not playing stupid, but do you feel like maybe they were really intimidated to ask him to do that kind, kind of stuff? I don't know when.
0: They. Yeah, they're, they're dumbfounded. I mean, and, we, and that says there at the end of, uh, well, the walking on the water, I think, yeah. where they say they're utterly astounded. They're like, I don't, this, I've, I've lost, I have no idea what's going on anymore. But yeah. <laughs> like they, they know something's really up, but I mean, it's just, yeah, they're kind of just still blown away. They're not really, they're astounded, but not really getting it. I mean, he's, he's trying to press, and that's why Mark's recording this gospel, trying to show us, help us to get it. You know, one of the things we kind of want to do is put ourselves in the disciple's shoes. In what ways are we kind of getting it, but not really getting it that this guy is who he says he is? Because um, we can go on here to walking on the water, um, and there's a, a few things here that are very much God, God-esque. Um, he is. It, did anybody catch that when he goes to walk up to them in verse 48? It's about the fourth watch of the night. So this is like from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. They've been out working all night trying to get somewhere in this big, in this boat. And Jesus comes walking along and they're terrified, thinking it was a ghost. But it says something about what he wants to do. What's he want to do? He was about to pass by them. He was just going to walk past them. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go pass by them. And there's some typology going on there. We talked about typology in the Old Testament, how there's this prefiguring of Christ. But there's places in the Old Testament where, where God passes by. He passes by Moses. Uh, Moses says, I want to see your face. And God says, no one can see my face. But what I'll do, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand and I'll pass by you and you'll be able to see me. And there's this passing by of God language. It's passing by that you see him as he passes by. And also Elisha. In First Kings, goes gets terrified, goes off and hides. And you hear about the still small voice sometimes that God's not in the storm and He's not in the in the thunder and He's not in the lightning, not in the fire. And this still small voice, and, and and God passes by Elijah. There's this passing by language that's kind of coming out here in Mark. And also, God-like language is that when He says, um, verse 50, immediately spoke to them, and said, "Take courage." it is i that's a ego i'm not a greek expert so i'll get butchered if anybody actually spoke greek nobody here speaks greek because you yeah, could say a ego ami which is basically it's the greek transliteration of that hebrew i am there in exodus 314 where god discloses himself to moses as the i am and jesus is saying when he's out here take courage i am he's you know he's communicating to them his godness that he is God. So we could go to the parallel accounts where Peter walks, and those are those are good, but um, we're not going to. So that's kind of that. We let's jump now to these other healings. Let's skip seven and go, or skip seven one through twenty three, and let's go to seven. There's these other healings that happen, and they're all kind of pointing to the same thing. We've got the healing of the Syrophoenician woman, the healing of the deaf and the mute man, another, the feeding of the 4,000, a few more, a little more teaching, and then the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. And the way this kind of ends up, when you talk about the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, he sees, and yet he doesn't quite see. <laughs> and there's, I, there, there could be something being communicated to us there by Mark, that's typical of kind of the disciples. They've been touched by Jesus. They see, but that's, people are like trees walking around. They, they see, but they don't quite see. And then Jesus touches them again, and they see. And so there's this kind of this language of seeing, but not quite seeing totally. And so that's an interesting uh, healing there. Syrophoenician woman, she impresses Jesus with her tenacity. Even dogs get fed the children's crumbs. This is a Gentile woman. She's she shouldn't really be speaking to Jesus uh, is why they're kind of making this idea. And calling herself a dog is a very derogatory term to I mean, even in today's language I guess, but even then it was a, a derogatory term to say, you know and she's just saying, Hey, I don't care. I'm a dog, but I think you've got what I what I need and, and I want to get fed from you. She get this her daughter gets healed. Tess, What's that word? The man gets. Uh, Jesus says, "Speak some word." In verse 34, to the deaf and mute man. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's what. So, um, yeah, I don't know what. It's a, a word here that he says to him to have him uh, speak, and he does. And kind of the 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 culmination there is verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement, saying, "He does. He has done everything well." Is that what I say here? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, adventures and missing the point. Yeah, see, yeah. He does all things well. And one of the things, it's, it's fun, it's interesting to note, no one is arguing with Jesus over his miraculous power. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, that's a lot of people showing up to eat this meal. A lot of people ate the miraculous fish and chips that that Jesus served out. But no time has really spent in the text. When the Pharisees show up, it isn't like I don't think you really fed five thousand people. You know oh, that's ridiculous. That can't happen. No one really disputes these healings. In our culture, you know, it's kind of in, in some of the liberal Christian circles. You know, they they kind of cut out a lot of the miraculous. No one here in the Gospels is debating the miraculous. They're, these eyewitnesses during Mark's writing could have certainly said, "Yeah, I was there that day," and that's not how it went down. Uh, you know, it, I had a I had a a piece of salt off of a saltine. No, they, they were fed. No one's arguing these miraculous, um, events. So then to the teaching, unless you guys have anything more you want to say about the, um, the miracles, all of these things are just culminating trying to show us this dude, somebody special. And so then we come to his teachings. Um, this is chapter seven, verses one through 23. There's basically two teachings. One's on traditions and then the other is kind of on defilement. Um, who do you relate to in the gospel accounts? Um, some people want to read it and they want to see themselves with Jesus. And so we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to go heal people. We're supposed to make people feel better. We're supposed to have a very philanthropy uh, kind of social justice. Um, I would be very careful about reading yourself as Jesus in the text. Some people read themselves as the disciples, you know, and so, and, 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 you know, Jesus is teaching you how to do life and whatever, and, and that's okay. But Lots of times we're the villains. <laughs> and so these Pharisees show up, and it's you, you want to try to put yourselves in their shoes. And in what way is what he's saying to them something that he's saying to us? He attacks traditions here. And it sounds like what he's saying is that the disciples are just dirty, right? It sounds like he's saying the Pharisees are like, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And we all say, that's kind of gross. Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Does somebody else think that when they read that? I always think... I don't want Joel to read that because, yeah, we want to wash our hands before we eat. That's kind of that's how we all get sick. This is a ceremonial washing, right, that's going on here. This isn't just simply getting clean. This is a ritual um, bath that they're talking about, that they're washing their pots and their pans, their couches even, all sorts of things, ceremonial washings that they do. The the Jews have uh, giant books, um, the mik. Uh, the Midrash maybe or something like that But there are all these commentaries They have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible And just huge commentaries about all of their laws Rules upon rules upon rules About what you do in all these certain cases But traditions um, Are what they're all about And they really don't have any heart involved In, in what Jesus is in, in, in what the gospel, what God is really about The argument over the Sabbath happens You remember And um they're mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath because they're all about keeping this rule instead of really getting at the heart of what the Sabbath was – man was made for the Sabbath. Or Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says. But so this tradition of washing comes in, and, and Jesus gets upset about it, and he's, he's confronting them about treasuring their tradition, treasuring their rules over authentic – Faith, essentially, over authentic desire to do what God has for you to do. It's kind of this quote from Isaiah is pivotal there in verse six. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. These people were counting on their observance of the rules to win them right standing at the end of the day. Our natural bent is to love external rule-keeping. Um, and what we all would kind of like is that when we gather for Bible study, what we would end up doing is we get our little list of things of how we make God happy so that we can go out and start trying to get to work. And it's just kind of our natural bent to be very religious in that way. And we kind of just want our rules. And so then you have your rule, and then you put your rule about your rule, and, and these are the things that you just kind of got to keep up. And at the end of the day, this is not about rules whatsoever. And it's not that, it's not that tradition is terrible. Um, Jesus, in um, other places, talks well of tradition. Um, but they're, they're, they're great servants. They're terrible masters, traditions are. Um, so then the question is, when this prophecy, when this thing from Isaiah comes at us, Is this talking about us? Are we those who honor God with our lips, with our external service, but our hearts are far from him? Joel chapter 2 verse 13, one of the prophets, this is kind of the the vein they get on. They say, rend your hearts and not your garments. And a lot of following of Jesus becomes about externals instead of honest contrition, honest repentance, honest grief over what's gone on and an honest desire to be with God, not just conform to what he wants us to. Happy Thanksgiving, Tess. To you too, I'm
1: taking this for the road. I don't, I don't you blame you. Me. Yeah, you guys too, yeah safe driving. Sorry, I'm leaving it early. It's all right. See you test. Test. See
0: you oh, uh, yeah, you can stay. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just Jesus, you know, you, you could, we could sit around and list up all these traditions that we have of, and that maybe are good things. Church attendance is a good thing. Um, to Bible study is a good thing. Uh, you, you know, saying family devotions, things like that are a good thing. All sorts of things you can build up as traditions are good things. But at the end of the day, if, if you're counting on your externals to provide something, you're in big trouble. That you are honoring, possibly honoring God with your lips, but your heart remaining far in yours. What you're really doing in many ways, and what they're doing is instead of doing things that honor God. They're building up walls to keep themselves safe from God so they can say, these are the things that I've done (laughs) to kind of keep God happy instead of honestly um, worshiping not in vain but worshiping rightly. Um, They've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So then, uh, one of the examples here is this korban um, that, you know, honor your father and your mother is a basic, one of the Ten Commandments but they had this money that uh, they had this rule in their book that you can say, well, I'd like to help mom and dad out, but my money's all Corbin. It's all given to God. And so I really can't let them have it because it's got to go to God. And it was a way to kind of get around the the need to honor your father and mother and help them out. And so they were uh, kind of messing with the system. So then, lastly, I put now follow your heart, I think. Yeah. Follow your heart because that's kind of. Um, I don't know. That's one of my pet peeves maybe or something. But, you know, somebody asked me on Facebook one time, They private messaged me that, what do you do when your heart says one thing and your head says the other thing? Which one do you follow? You follow your heart, you follow your head. And I said, I wouldn't follow either one of those things. Those are probably both terrible, (laughs) terrible things to follow. But, but and I wasn't just, I was kind of being facetious. But the other side of it is, I mean, your heart is not a safe place for you to gain wisdom from. Um, Jesus is talking here the main one of the huge things he does it doesn't matter to us here in America anymore is declaring all foods clean. we don 't have a problem with that we i, I didn 't find it was in that pumpkin bar. I just <laughs> ate it and thought it was delicious don 't even care but if you're Jewish, you really care about your your food it needs to be kosher and you know uh, but Jesus wipes away those dietary laws and this is one of the places that he does this. But he goes. He doesn't just leave it about food, and he talks about where your defilement comes from. And your defilement is not about what you put into yourself, but the defilement is seen by what comes out of you. And one of the ways it's kind of classified as: um, you're not a sinner because you sin; you sin because you are a sinner. And it's like sin, you don't you don't become a, a sinner because you go out and do sin. It's like no. The reality is you do sin because at your core. You are a sinner. And there's two different ways of looking at that. We think, oh, I just got to keep myself. Well, Jesus is saying that it's what comes out of you is what makes you unclean or um, defiled. It's what, what comes out of you. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is one you don't hear preached on much, <laughs> and I mean, there's not a lot of way around what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not PC. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus's ethic would not be welcomed, uh, well, in our in our pop culture for sure. Um, he's just. He, he gives examples about what this uncleanliness means. Um, we could go into all of these things. We don't have time. The, the word sexual immorality, I just got to say this part for my own conscious. The word sexual immorality is the Greek word there, pornea. Um, it's basically it's a junk drawer term for sexual immorality of all type. And so in this Jewish mindset... Uh, what that word porneia is, is talking about is all sorts of sexual activity outside of heterosexual monogamous relationship. That's what Jesus would have been talking about. There there really isn't much way to get away from that idea if you're going to stick with the Bible. That's This is what Jesus is talking about. So this is all sorts of activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Um, so... Jesus really kind of steps on a lot of toes uh, when it comes to this passage. However, we don't want to read this as now our, this is how I load my gun with ammunition. Now I can go out and I can shoot down everybody that's, oh, look at all these people. This is, what this is, is calling your number. The reality is this is calling my number. Um, When you read these things, these are you. I mean, and when you start talking about sexual morality being um, all sexual sin outside of heterosexual marriage, I don't. In our culture today, and I'm not making a personal slight to anybody, I don't know anybody that gets away uh, without being scathed by that stern definition of what it means to be sexually pure. Our culture is too rampant and crazy and influencing in too many negative ways. Everyone comes away from this guilty on that front. But theft, murder, Jesus ramps up murder to just be hatred in your heart towards someone else. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness. You ever told a, kind of an off-color lewd? I mean that's what it's talking about. That's lewdness. This isn't me being a prude. This is Jesus. <laughs> Slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from inside and they make a man unclean. The problem with following your heart is that your heart, Jeremiah tells us, is desperately wicked. That we are sinners. So, thanks for coming out, guys. And that's where I have. So, so this is where that three that the three kind of distinctions of law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. The reality is, let's go to let's go to text. We're gonna to go to First John, uh, chapter one, verses eight and nine. The reality that John is gonna tell us here. Oh, five thirty. Okay. First John, clear at the back. First John, chapter one, verses eight and nine. 1 John, first, second, third John, Jude, Revelation. So it's clear at the back of your Bible. First John, not the Gospel oh, no, of John, not the Gospel God, of John, God. First John. <laughs> first, second, and third John, Jude, Revelation. So it's like the fifth book from the back of your Bible. First John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is where he really calls our number again, the apostle John does, and he says, "If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves." So if you're going to pretend like you don't belong in this list of Jesus's, John's just telling you uh, you, you're deceived. This is you. You try to you can pretend like your heart's roses, and you know do that with your in-laws if you want to. But no, they aren't going to buy it. No one's no one's buying it. It's uh, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. But verse nine is a glorious reality. If we confess our sins, that would be part of repentance. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what makes the what makes the Bible such a beautiful book is it doesn't get a soft it isn't gonna cut the hard edges off on the law. It isn't gonna say, well, you know, everybody kind everybody's in this bad uh, state, so you know what? Doesn't matter. No. Jesus doesn't say everyone's in the same boat, it's okay. He says, No, these things defile you. This is a problem. This is sin. And then he comes in with a gospel and says that don't deceive yourself, but and that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's why I started out with that the gospel message needs to have this element of repent, repent. That this is nailing us to the wall, and God's saying, Jesus is calling you on the carpet saying, these are things that are you, and how are you going to respond? Are you going to fight against those things? Say, well, no, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And build up your traditions, or are you going to hear the prophets, not rend your garments, but rend your heart, confess, and believe that, this is where the cross comes in, right? This is the last, we'll finish with this, that Jesus Christ, he didn't do any of these things. He was perfect. He was sinless. He comes to earth, lives that perfect life, and then, which deserves the righteous judgment of God. But instead, he goes to a cross. He takes the wrath of God that all of us deserve for being sinners upon himself, so that through repentance and faith we would be forgiven of sins. Our sin is imputed or given to him, and his righteousness is imputed or given to us, which reconciles us to God, justifies us in God's sight. Romans 5 8 is my last text. This is your thanksgiving text. You shut your Bible already. No. <laughs> I
1: have a question, um, and stuff. Okay. Um, and I'm not talking about anything specific, so don't like <laughs> think I did something bad. But if you're, if you did something bad or in, you know, sin.
0: Yes, you have. You you're did, right?
1: Sorry. Do you? Is it enough to ask for forgiveness from God, or are you supposed to well, make it right? with whatever it was on earth. You know you see what like mm-hmm. I mean I I'm just saying like so say you committed adultery. Mm-hmm. Are you supposed to make it right? Somehow talk about it, for ask for forgiveness from you know, your husband or are you supposed to Right. Is it enough from God? You know I don't know.
0: Well what's yeah, I mean those are we don't wanna build up too many uh, things on top of whatever uh, too many like rules of well. In this scenario, this. In this scenario, this. Um, but if 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 in a case of adultery, you have sin- that person that has committed adultery has sinned. Yes, chiefly against God, and so yes, they need to confess their sin to God. And and sometimes what that what that would mean is not. It's kind of easy sometimes to go into your prayer closet and confess your sin. Right. It might mean a pastor or someone in your Bible study or your community group, we don't have those right now, but if you did, uh, that you would confess your sin to them and you'd say, I did this. I need to confess this. And ideally what they would say is they would say, Jesus Christ bled and died for that sin. And I tell you, not with my authority, but with with the authority of Jesus Christ, that sin is forgiven. Now... (laughs) In light of that forgiven sin between you and God, there could be some rest, reconciliation that needs to happen in your relationships. And and yeah, one of those things I would probably advise is that that's something that a that a partner should know about. Yeah. Not something like that for yeah. sure. Now, if it's if there if there are issues where it's going to cause undue harm or stress to a, to a party, may they didn't even know you'd done a sin or something. You wouldn't have to make it all, you know, there's, you know, we can't work all these things out. But certainly the thing you want to get solved is the sin against God. And then, but but doing that should kind of empower you in the forgiveness of God to then go and make it right. So if you were to break a law and, um, well, I don't know, steal something uh, heinously, you know, and then you come to me and, and I say, and you confess your sin and I say, you know, you're, that sin is washed by the blood of Jesus. I've, you know, when your confession, your your repentance, you're forgiven. Uh, turn yourself into the authorities. Would be my next. <laughs> I wouldn't say Don't go home God home doesn't you care, huh? Yeah. Return your property and turn yourself into the authorities because you're you did steal. I mean, so there's re- there's repercussions to sin, no matter what. That that being justified and forgiven, your sin doesn't get you off of horizontal realities. Yeah. Shouldn't. Makes sense. I don't yeah. know the kind of answer yeah, just, you know. Well, I mean, I mean there's.
1: For forgiveness and if you're truly, you know, right. like, want to be forgiven at heart, that then right. you still feel like you know you're being pulled by whatever it was. Like right. I still don't feel like it's right with who, you know what I mean or whatever right. you did. No
0: reconciliation part. is yeah. an important. I mean, and it, it yeah. I mean, it, specific issues would have to be right. handled I mean, certain I should, I just ways. Just so you know
1: what I was but you know what what? I mean? just,
0: Oh yeah. Reconciliation should be sought for, I think, in all those things. As a picture of the gospel, is is reconciliation happening between wounded parties? I mean, I think that's a good and right thing. Romans 5, 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is to be the comfort to the reality of you're a sinner, of sinners like you and like me. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. Romans 5 is all good there, but we are out of time. So I'll say a prayer so we can be finished. Father... I I want this to sit heavy on my own heart. I mean, and when we come to the teachings of Jesus like this, it isn't meant to be brushed aside. It isn't meant to be taken lightly. And Jesus wasn't just giving life coach advice. He was, um, you were telling us how it is. And so we want to, to keep all the hard edges of your law. We want to keep all the hard realities of sin. Not to beat ourselves up, but to, yes, lay us low to wreck us, to ruin us so that we can be um, reconciled, so that we can be rescued by the gospel. There is no good news apart from the reality of how bad off we are without you. So I ask, Holy Spirit, you would just um, work in our hearts to show areas in our lives that we have sinned, we have transgressed, What you would have us to do, and that we would confess that sin uh, to you, absolutely, God. That you would bring it to our minds and convict us. That we would confess that we could receive forgiveness. We thank you, God, as we come up to Thanksgiving tomorrow. We thank you that you are a God who loves us. You are a God who rescues sinners. That no no sin has gone too far or is too great. That you can't pull and rescue Uh, your child back to yourself and so God we ask that you would just um, give us eyes to see that help us to not be the disciples who are seen and not seen but God we want to see and really see and believe and trust and hope in you pray these things in your son Jesus name amen